Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Chips, the soccer podcast from Vice Sports. This is Aaron Gordon, as always, coming to you from my living room because... It is, I don't know, we were supposed to get a blizzard, but it's not actually a blizzard. It's uh, four inches of sleet on top of slush, so it's just gross out. So nobody went to work. They scared the entire city into staying in their homes, and that's where I am. Joining me online is someone who is not in a blizzard. It is Will McGee from Vice Sports UK. Will, how are you? I'm fine, yeah. We're in a we're in a different room today. It's quite cold in here. It's like it's sort of haunted by the... The ghost of an intern um, or someone. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, I don't know. It feels kind of slightly otherworldly. My recording of this podcast. So if I sound weird and ethereal, it's probably to do with the the supernatural stuff. Is that room you're in like the room where you bring the interns at the end of their at the end of their interning season and like sacrifice their souls to the content gods? Yeah, this is the intern slaughterhouse. Yeah, very good. That doesn't seem problematic at all. <laughs> you, you, so you were like you were you were so worried about you know like libeling you know, like one of the like an EPL player last week by asserting they might be a fascist, but you have no problem just saying that you slaughter interns in the room you're currently in. You can't you can't libel an intern. I don't think. I don't think. <laughs> it requires requires a certain degree of personhood that they don't have. I guess. <laughs> I don't think by law that you can uh, you can libel an intern. So um, yeah, no, I'm not worried. All right, very good. Speaking of of libeling and personhood, um, Paul Pogba seems to be really kind of floating in the space in which people alternatively treat him as a person and not as a person, just like this this mobile scapegoat who runs around the soccer field. Uh, doing things that they can later then blame him for if the team loses. Uh, it's also called the honorary Mesu Ozil role, uh, and since Ozil isn't playing that much anymore, someone else needs to take up the mantle. Yesterday, United played uh, Chelsea in an FA Cup quarterfinal. Uh, if you didn't watch... Uh, United's defensive plan mostly consisted of hacking down Eden Hazard whenever he got the ball. The ref had had enough of it by like the 20th minute, told them if you foul him one more time, I'm going to start showing cards. And then immediately Ender Herrera, who was already on a yellow card, fouled Eden Hazard, got a second yellow, and that pretty much sealed the game. Uh, somehow the takeaway from the end of this game for a lot of people was that Paul Pogba is not good. Uh... I just don't follow this one at all. Will, do you want to help me out here? Uh, it seems like mainly the commentary has been 
a comparison between uh, Paul Pogba, Paul Pogba, and Golo Kante, which is yeah, kind of like quite interesting. I wonder why people are doing that necessarily. I mean, racism. Um, well, <laughs> I'm just I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Sorry. Hell, that's, that's, a, that's a big conclusion to drop straight away. I mean, um, <laughs> but actually, sort of not impossible. Um, or at least just kind of lazy, like comparisons between the two. I'm not sure. I think the first problem is I'm not sure they really play the same midfield role. So comparing them is is kind of slightly. Uh, I don't know. They're playing in different systems and they're doing different things. So it's not a good comparison. No, it's, it's, a, it's just basically, not. you know. I think I think really it comes down to the fact they're both they're both sort of crucial summer signings. One has obviously worked out better than the other. But you know whether you can actually like whether there's any relativism between two summer signings just because they happen to both have been signed in the summer, that seems a bit arbitrary to me. Like, I almost feel like, I don't know, that that basically, yeah, sure, Kante costs less, less of a marquee signing or whatever, but it's turned out to be more effective. But then again, as I said, they're kind of doing different things. So, you know, I guess you could sign a centre-back and he could be really effective, but would we, would we be using him as like a stick with which to beat Paul Pogba? I don't know. I'm going to run through like a, just off the top of my head, like what is similar about these players? Uh, they're both soccer players. Yeah. They both play in England. Yeah. They're, they're both black. Yeah. They both play midfield. Yeah. I don't really have much else after that. Like what else is similar about them? I mean, they both, and like you say, they both signed for new teams this year to different transfer fees, Paul Pogba obviously being the, you know, either the most expensive or one of the most expensive transfers of all time, while Conte was not. But also, I mean, like, obviously Paul Pogba is going to be more expensive than than N'Golo Conte. Paul Pogba is younger. He has more experience at being a, you know, top flight player. He has a more diverse skill set. He is coming from a from a more accomplished team on a longer contract without a buyout clause. Like all of the like there were lots of factors aside from like which would be more useful to their team at this given moment that dictated their price. And I feel like it's just very bizarre to uh kind of compare them so so directly, you know? I think there's uh there's an element of it which is probably just the narrative of basically how, you know, English or British sensibilities and perceptions reflect on both players. So I think Kante is seen as uh, a kind of modest sort of one for all and all for one style player who's basically putting himself, kind of sacrificing his own sort of glory or personal sort of uh, personal capital on the altar of the team and being successful as a result. While I think a lot of people seem to have taken... I mean, rightly or wrongly, seems to have taken issue with the fact that Paul Pogba is kind of a bit of a brand and, you know, has kind of built up, I don't know, his own sort of personal image. He seems very much, or at least his advisors are clearly interested in, you know, image rights and sponsorship and so on and so forth. And I think basically people are comparing and contrasting those two things. But like you said, N'Golo Kante is coming from Leicester and is, you know, pretty much still a... I mean, last season he was basically an undiscovered gem and this season he's a slightly more discovered gem, but we're still yet to see really what he can kind of, what he can do on the world stage. While, uh, you know, Pogba's come from Juventus, has had a lot of years of being like at the absolute pinnacle of football. So, you know, in some ways they come from very different backgrounds and that's also a relatively arbitrary way to, to compare them, you know? Yeah, I guess I forgot one more similarity between them. They're both, they both are French. So there's that, right? They both play on the French national team. But... That's not really relevant to this discussion. 
It's it's really interesting to me how much people love to congratulate players for having a very defined role in a system that makes it easy for them, not easy for them to succeed, but makes it easier for them to succeed. I mean, what Conte is at, has been asked to do, both at Leicester and at uh, Chelsea, is not an easy role, and it's one we see players struggle in all the time, for sure. I think, like, a good you know example is, like, kind of what we've seen uh, Jaka do at, at Arsenal. He's come into, like, a somewhat similar role and has had a lot of difficulties. But Pogba hasn't even had the benefit of a single role at United or a single position since he's been there. I mean, he's kind of moved around a lot. He's asked to do a lot of different things. I think if Pogba was responsible for just holding down the midfield in much of the same way that N'Golo Kante is, he would be extremely successful. Um, But he's a better player than that. He has a more diverse skill set than that, so he's asked to do more. Uh, But, I mean, just having this conversation after yesterday's game is what's really strange to me because I don't really know how Pogba, who basically didn't foul Hazard once, is somehow responsible for one of his teammates being sent off for fouling him too many times, even in the first half. Yeah, it's a difficult one. I just kind of think, like, like I saw, like, yesterday, for instance, I saw a lot of statistical comparisons between um, Kante and Pogba. And that just struck me as like complete misrepresentation of what was going on. As in, you know, there were a lot of things of like, basically Kante's stats all came out better than Pogba. But anyone who watched the match after Herrera's sending off would have seen that, you know, basically United played without the ball for most of the game. And, you know, yeah, of course Pogba has less completed passes than Kante. He wasn't on the front foot of a team attacking. He was of a team defending with 10 men at Stamford Bridge. It's kind of like... Is that there's been some very, very um, sort of, I don't know, just kind of rigid and non-applicable comparisons made between the two. But also, um, yeah, like you're saying, you know, Pogba, you, you don't generally buy a kind of ball, like a, like a play-breaking kind of ball-winning guy for 100 million euros. I mean, that's just, that would be like quite a crazy amount of money to spend on an out-and-out you know, disruptive defensive midfielder. Basically, um, you know, Pogba is meant to do something far more expansive. And they, you know, clearly he, within the context of the current United team, hasn't quite nailed that down yet. But to sort of arbitrarily whack his stats next to uh, next to Ungolo Kante's stats seems like just, I don't know, pretty pretty reductive, really, and fairly pointless. I don't think it... I don't think it educates any football fans, really. I don't think it actually elucidates anything for the rest of us. Yeah, and th- so, like, you kind of mentioned that people are harping on Pogba for, like, having a brand and then also being not uh, the world's best soccer player and that you can't, you shouldn't be allowed to do both, essentially, seems to be the knock. I kind of, like, looked this up because I was just curious what people were saying. And the first thing that came up when I Googled, you know, N'Golo Kante, Paul Pogba was this Sky Sports article. Um, Paul Pogba should concentrate less on the brand and more on N'Golo Kante. It's like, I'm fairly certain that like when Paul Pogba was running around on the field, he wasn't like worrying about his brand. I'm pretty sure he was trying to play the game. But uh, I don't know. It seems like that, like the whole article is premised based on, comments that former Celtic striker Andy Walker told Premier League Daily. Are any of those things I should care about? Like, where are these opinions coming from? I mean, yeah, it's a very weird way of framing it as well, this kind of 
Pogba versus Kante, almost like a kind of Keane versus Vieira midfield battle. When, as we've said... But that's not what it was. Exactly, yeah, like you said. As we've said several times, that's not, that, that was never the nature, not only of their two midfield roles, but also of the, of the game itself, because the game was quite abnormal in a way in that most of it was played 11 v 10. I mean, it just isn't, you know, this isn't, not everything can be turned into like some wonderfully marketable midfield battle of the 90s. I mean, essentially, you know, this was a, this was a, a strange outlier on the, on the kind of scale of games. And to use that to like draw firm, solid comparisons between the two guys is, is I mean, like it's basically just wrong. Yeah, I think it would, it would be interesting to have a conversation based on that game of like, what is Pogba's role on the side when you're 11 v 11? Or, you know, even going back to the first, you know, half hour of the game, what's his role when, you know, you pl- when United is trying to play a little bit more defensively and have a strategy of how to shut down the other team's best player. Um, and that, do- that didn't involve Paul Pogba, really. It was mostly Phil Jones shadowing um, Eden Hazard. So I don't know. But like that doesn't naturally, that's not the discussion anyone's having because it inquires, it requires some like research and stuff. And I don't know, people would much rather just like bark at the, at the microphone as they, can you know just say insulting things at one of the world's best soccer players i guess i know it's it's interesting i mean like you said that kind of the idea that paul pogba should be thinking about or modeling himself on angolo kante when you think like a few years ago paul pogba was playing in the champions league final for juventus and none of us had ever heard of angolo kante or you know you know he's a he's a new guy who's been kind of unearthed they're two different players. Both of them, I'm sure, will have really great careers. But the idea that one should be modelling themselves on the other or whatever, is, it just seems really very, very strange for two people who come from such... I mean, despite being, as you said, you know, young French players who come from very different backgrounds in terms of their football education and who actually probably in some ways have quite different ambitions in the game, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, I mean, it's... Yeah, it's... it's uh, I don't know, it, it just seems quite... Uh, I feel like using the word lazy is almost lazy in itself, but it I, it just does. There is a sort of the whole narrative does smack of complacency. Really. Well, yeah, as we kind of mentioned at the top, like it's the, the comparisons are so superficial. Like I don't think even I'm, I'm sure that even Pogba's like most fervent supporters wouldn't want him to play more like N'Golo Kante because that would be so limiting to what Pogba is good at. I mean, Pogba is. He's almost like a box-to-box plus. Like, he can do... He can play the box-to-box style, but he also is quite good in the final third um, in a more forward role. Like, there's no reason to keep him completely limited to a box-to-box midfielder style. And Conte, I'm... I'm not even sure you would call him box to box. I think he's he's really much more of a central defensive type. Like he, you want him shutting down the midfield. You don't want him participating in attacks at all. So I think it's the comparison is is bad because. Um, well, let me start over. I mean, like I just think it's it's really dumb to limit Paul Pogba that way by saying like he should play more like N'Golo Kante. Like that's just such an unimaginative. Uh, criticism to have and one that frankly like kind of exposes someone who's not really understanding who either of these players are yeah I mean you know it should it should sort of be qualified that um, clearly within the roles they have been given however broad those are N'Golo Kante this season has been more successful at doing what he's been asked to do than Paul Pogba who at times has quite you know visibly and clearly struggled but that doesn't mean that these players 
in terms of like the way that the argument's being framed at the moment can be compared so directly or so kind of starkly when actually there are a hell of a lot of subtleties to, you know, any sort of attempt to draw a comparison between the two, really. Yeah, and of course, like, the role Conte has been given is much more manageable than the one Pogba has been given, which, I don't know, I feel like one of the big, uh, especially criticisms of Mourinho and of United at the beginning of the season when Pogba really struggled was that nobody on the team really seemed to have a defined role. It seemed like a lot, there was a lot of constant shuffling around and I'm sure that played into his poor performance to at least some degree. Quite possibly. Yeah. I mean, also going back to what you said earlier, although I'm not, I don't think this is true of like the entire journalistic kind of profession, but um, you know, when you said that basically they're both young black French players, I think there is an element of that to which there's an element of the comparison, which is just pure, like just simple, lazy kind of equivalence because of their like similar kind of backgrounds and whatever. So, I mean, I'm I'm writing an article at the moment about how this, the Monaco striker, Kylian Mbappe, is being like compared to, people have already compared him to like the new Thierry Henry. And basically, you know, the guy's made 44 appearances. They, you know, his main, like uh, his main sort of, Comparison points with Henri are that he started out with Monaco and that he's essentially young, French and black. And that those are the arbitrary criteria by which the two guys are compared. You know, it seems that happens quite a lot in football. It's like when you hear people being called like the new Vieira and stuff. It basically is to do with like it often boils down to their rough kind of ballpark age and their ethnicity. And that's kind of I don't know, that's that seems like a pretty shitty way of sort of doing football analysis, really. No, yeah, and it's, and it's not just a, a soccer thing in Europe either. We get it in the States, too. Like, any time a young, white, three-point shooter in college basketball, like, emerges as, like, particularly skilled, they're always compared to all the other white three-point shooters who have played basketball in the last 40 years. And, you know, if, like, a really big... Um, like big bodied black center is being really successful. He's compared to like Shaq or somebody, you know? So like, I think, I think it's, and and it's it's the same in in American football with black quarterbacks, like black quarterbacks are always compared to other black quarterbacks. And so I think, I think in white receivers to other white receivers. So like basically whenever someone who uh, appears in the American sporting landscape, whose defined role is very similar to another very famous player who played that position, who also maybe was racially um, not the not the race that usually plays that position, then they always get compared to them. And I think that's kind of like what we're seeing here too. Well, it's kind of like it, it, you know it happens in um, it happens in South American football as well. Famously, the new Maradona was basically a tag thrown around until I think Lionel Messi transcended it. Lionel Messi is probably one of the only people who's actually been labeled the new insert superstar here and actually managed to sort of not only live up to that, but also maybe make it his own. But I mean, yeah, basically that was just to do with a guy being a small, you know, either striker or sort of false nine or attacking midfielder who happened to be from either Argentina or you know, Brazil or whatever, or certain, you know, South, any South American country, really. And that's just kind of pretty, uh, again, it shows that basically everyone does it. And that those are kind of, sometimes those are, I say everyone does it. I mean, it happens in all sort of like walks of football and all different sort of continents and stuff. But yeah, it basically just plays into very kind of, I don't know what I imagine a, a fairly subtle, but nonetheless existent prejudices just in terms of like labeling players after people who kind of look a bit like them or are a bit like them. 
but like actually nothing that you, you can't take any substance from that kind of comparison it just seems it's, it's pretty it's basically entirely entirely kind of reductive so like for instance nobody nobody's going to compare paul pogba to like if there was a historical comparison nobody's going to compare him to Roy Keane or David Beckham or you know someone who might have played for Manchester United but basically happens to have been a white midfielder as opposed to a black one I mean essentially these comparisons are all based on people who are of like similar backgrounds and similar ethnicities and that's basically as as substantial as the comparison gets yeah I think I think there's definitely something to that and I mean it does you know despite my my kind of joke at the beginning like I don't think it's racism I think like it's just people being kind of lazy and uh i think i i I mean there are definitely like there's definitely a through line of being intellectually lazy and then making some you know and then basically like using that lazy logic to then say culturally or socially insensitive things um but i don't think that's the case here i think people are just being kind of silly yeah no i think i think like racism would be quite a strong way of defining it but certainly it's kind of an inherent um I mean, when I say like when I say prejudice, I don't necessarily mean that in the strongest term of the word, but just simply it's that kind of, yeah, as you say, just just lazy, lazy thinking based on, you know, some pretty simple kind of ethnic criteria, basically. Yeah. Speaking of lazy thinking, sounds like there's some lazy thinking or has been some lazy thinking going on at Leicester the last couple of months. Uh, I don't know. You know, we talked about Ranieri getting fired two weeks ago on our last uh, episode, but we wanted to follow it up because uh, that thing that always happens when a manager leaves a club is happening again at Leicester where they get trashed on their way out and somehow the press manages to get a hold of a story about how the old manager wasn't doing anything anyways, and then it's actually the new interim manager who has been keeping the club together, making sure that, you know, the club hasn't been totally falling apart, and really all the credit that the guy who just got fired was getting, he didn't deserve it. The credit goes to this new guy who's still here. Um, Funny enough, that is happening exactly at Leicester right now. Uh, It turns out, according to Sky Sports, that Craig Shakespeare was the genius behind, like, all of what's happened at Leicester. And Claudio Ranieri was just this lazy Italian who flew home every weekend to go take care of his sick mother and really didn't care about the team at all. Um, I'm being a little over the top here. That's not exactly what they said. But that is kind of the gist of it. Like, that is what they want. They clearly want you to take away from it. Uh, And it sounds like most of their sourcing on this comes from a guy named Kevin Phillips. Will, do you have any thoughts on Kevin Phillips? Well, just for context, Kevin Phillips is like quite a prolific former striker who now has kind of turned his hand to coaching. He played for loads of teams, but like Sunderland and people most notably. But he, yeah, he's on the Leicester coaching staff now. And yeah, it was, his quotes were quite, were quite odd, really. I mean, so for instance, he said that he'd worked, I mean, I'm quoting literally now, I worked, I worked there, in other words, Leicester, for a short period under Ranieri. And at times the organisation wasn't good. And um, oh, sorry. I should also qualify that um, I think he's I think he's working at Derby now. He's not actually working at Leicester anymore, but he was previously on the Leicester coaching staff. But um, yeah, so he said that the organisation wasn't good. And although I can kind of you know, I, I mean, he's the guy behind the scenes. I, I didn't work behind the scenes at Leicester during their title win. The kind of the general gist of the thing is that Craig Shakespeare was, and I, again, I quote, holding everything together. Um, and I don't really believe or well I don't at all believe that I, that basically a club like Leicester would have won the league without um 
extremely good organization you know whether or not it was absolutely meticulous or perfect is another thing but i i just it seems absolutely impossible that basically last season was a dysfunction you know Leicester were dysfunctional Ranieri was kind of semi-absentee and not very hands-on and that you know basically his backroom staff pulled it together and won the league in spite of that with you know with a a club that were never expected to do it and you know in a manner that basically has shocked the world of sport like that that just does not ring even remotely true so yeah I think it's basically as you're saying you kind of hinted at there's there's a sort of there's a convenience to this in that you know for the for the purposes of the current like regime at the club obviously the kind of lionization of Ranieri and the morning of Ranieri leaving is you know possibly a bit inconvenient so they've kind of Perhaps, uh, I don't know, they're trying to repudiate that a little bit. And also, you know, people who've previously been there are trying to repudiate that. But I just, yeah, it, it seems to me completely to go against all sort of logic and rationale and reason to think that Ranieri was was somehow, you know, just being carried with a team that on their own, on their own impetus and with the impetus of just their backroom staff and their coaching staff managed to do the impossible and win the Premier League. I mean, basically... Anyone, anyone suggesting that Ranieri was a passenger in Leicester's title win, or even even just implying it, because I'm not I'm not necessarily saying that Kevin Phillips has gone that strong, but he's kind of there's been a there's a kind of little implication there that basically, you know, Craig Shakespeare and the people currently there are actually the people who are you know in the engine room of that success. But to suggest that Ranieri was kind of a bit of a passenger is just seems to me, I don't know, like. <laughs> I don't want to say disrespectful because it's a bit sort of, you know, it's a bit naive, but it just kind of seems like basically factually incorrect because I can't see how you could possibly, you know, win the league with Leicester without having a manager and a team firing on all cylinders at the same time. It just kind of, it doesn't make sense. And there's no real need for, for them to, to, to not trash Ranieri, but to kind of undermine Ranieri's legacy in that way. Because I think, to be honest, they're doing well already without him. And they can probably just afford to crack on as they are, really. I think it's it's both entirely predictable and also kind of shocking that they're doing this. Uh, like the predictable part is that you see this happen all the time, right? When a manager leaves and all of a sudden you find out all the ghosts in the closet or the monsters under the bed and you know just everything that went wrong when he was there. Uh, the example that most immediately comes to mind was when Van Hall left uh, United a couple of years ago, and it was like for two weeks afterwards, just nonstop stories about what a ni- nightmare he was there, and how much the players didn't like him. Which, like, to be fair, seems very easy not to like Louis Van Hall. He doesn't seem like a very likable guy. I was about to say that Van Hall might be a slightly special case in that I can vaguely imagine all of that stuff being true, but maybe that's just my prejudice. Yeah, I hear I hear your points about like. It doesn't seem plausible that Lester could go on this amazing run while having, you know, a semi-dysfunctional backroom staff with an absentee manager. But at the same time, there's nothing about Claudio Ranieri leading a team to a magical Premier League title that made much sense to begin with. So I'm not really sure that this theory is any less plausible than if Ranieri just wasn't there really doing much of anything. I'm not really sure I believe that's the case. I don't really know what to believe. I'm not I'm not there. I, you know, I wasn't in the locker room, so I can't say. But I do think 
it just seems really unnecessary from an organizational standpoint for Lester. And I guess they, you know, like Lester might not have had much control over this story. Like they went to a former employee. Um, like you say, Kevin Phillips works for works for Derby now. So, you know, he can say whatever he wants. Lester doesn't really have any control over him. But it's certainly unfortunate for them that, like, they have a former employee coming out and saying this uh, about a manager that everyone just wants to like now. Like, just let it let it lie, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really think that anyone needs a particular propaganda coup over Ranieri or over Ranieri's time at the club. I mean, yeah, it just they're already they're already doing well. They've already regained some of their momentum. You know, they're playing in the Champions League tonight, or which what will be tomorrow when this podcast comes out. So I guess we'll know the result. But um, you know, they're, they're they're still at a kind of pinnacle of the club's achievement. So it really doesn't feel it doesn't it just doesn't feel necessary to. Um, to kind of go in on Ranieri and try and and try and kind of change the narrative to suit the current people. I mean, really, I think they they would be perfectly well suited just to say what he did was fantastic. He you know he won he won the league. You don't do that by accident, um, and you certainly you know no one lurches to kind of noble failure and then also manages to win the Premier League. It just doesn't work that way. But uh, I think they could they could fairly say that and. Uh, and just not, I don't think that would be undermining their, their present cause or their present kind of like, you know, their present uh, aims and, and ambitions. I think they could just, they can genuinely just draw a line under it, say it was a fantastic period in their history and uh, like they're moving on from here. Yeah. And there's also, you could also just be like, you know, regardless of what Ranieri's role was, it was the perfect role because they got the result. You know, they, they won the freaking league. So who cares if he was absentee? That was the right thing for that club at that time. I mean, like, I think it's fair to say that if he, if that was the case, if he was very, you know, hands off and Shakespeare basically ran things, uh, then that's what was best for the club. Like, clearly it worked. Like, why Why would you have wanted him to do anything different? Sure, exactly. If that was, if, if in the context of the team, that was what they needed, then that was a success. There's basically no way to spin someone winning the Premier League as a manager into that person didn't do a good job. That person did do yeah. a good job, whatever <laughs> they did. Even if they genuinely sat on their arse all day eating what's-its and like farting into the sofa, they still did a good job. So yeah, I think, although I'm, by the way, I'm not accusing Ranieri of having done that, but um, we, yeah, <laughs> we can fairly say. That would, be, that would be way too fascist of him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we can definitely say that he, uh, he was a success and, you know, hopefully post this season where, you know, obviously emotions have run high at times, Leicester fans will just think of him with an unqualified fondness and hopefully his former staff won't feel the need to, you know, kind of go back and revise his role in that in that title win. I need I need you to do me a favor. This is regarding Ranieri, but I need you to do me a favor and go legally place a bet in your glorious country where it's legal to bet on things, sports things, and place a bet for Ranieri's next managerial job to be in Major League Soccer. Why, I did see you tweeting about this the other day. Why are you so certain of that when, uh, you know, it seems like China's where the money is? It is where the where the money is, but I think MLS is catching up in that regard. Like, they just, uh, I think, like, the most uh, well-known example of this is, oh, God, I'm totally blanking on his name, so obviously under undermining my own point, but <laughs> Atlanta United's new manager... Atlanta United is an expansion club, and they actually shelled out some uh, club for... Or, God, I can't talk. I'm starting over. 
the best the best example of this is that MLS is actually spending money on on things now, like players and and managers. Is that Atlanta United, the new expansion club, they hired uh, Tata Martino, the the former uh, Argentina manager and the former Barcelona manager, to be there, and and they're doing quite well as an expansion club um, so far, at least. It's only been a couple of games, but I think uh, there is like the next big push in MLS. You know, they've already. They've already gone after the high high end talent, right? That every club can spend like a few roster spots that aren't against the salary cap, and they can spend however much money they want on players. And they are they are tr- bringing over some some big name, relatively big name players. Uh, the newest rumor is that they've offered Zlatan a monster deal to come to LA Galaxy after the season. Uh, whether that happens or not, I think what we're seeing is. The league is trending away from spending, from just spending on those big name players and then letting all the other chips fall where they may, to spending more on other areas of the game too. And I think the next big area of spending is going to be on managers uh, because that's cheaper than spending on like three or four new players. So if you can get a lot more out of your squad by hiring a manager who's way better than all the other managers in the league, then that's the logic behind it. And I think Ranieri is like the perfect MLS hire in that regard because he's an incredibly well-known name. He has incredibly high-profile success. He has no problem, you know, like crossing soccer borders to try something new. And he is kind of at the end of his line, so he's looking for like a last final challenge maybe. And uh, he's going to get offered a lot of money. And he's also not so successful that, like, he's going to be highly recruited by other teams around the world. It's basically going to be MLS in China, I think, that's going to be really interested in him. And I think MLS could make a solid case that it would be a more competitive environment for him. So, I don't know. I think I, I just think you can lock it down. I think it's going to happen. Well, I hope he signs for Guangzhou Evergrande tomorrow. <laughs> by tomorrow, do you mean, like, when this podcast comes out or the day after this podcast comes out? Either. Don't care. Tomorrow. <laughs> my tomorrow. The tomorrow for me in the present, not for the listeners. Listeners, this is your today. <laughs> I just hope he goes for it to a team in MLS that has a nice little Italy in its city, somewhere he can enjoy tastes of home and not be... Like, I, I hope he doesn't, like, go to Columbus or something like that. <laughs> and he would be very homesick there. It'd be sad. Where, where I mean, where does have a good little, little, little Italy? Uh, I mean, if he went to either of the New York teams, obviously, that would be that would be fine. This is this is all completely irrespective of whether they're looking for new man- <laughs> managers, by the way, which is honestly something that I don't even feel qualified to answer because I don't follow the league that closely. Um, although, like, NYCFC is run by the Manchester City Sports Group, so they'll fire a manager for nothing just to get a new one. So um, I think, you know, any the New York clubs would be good. Uh, L.A. I think would even be fine. Like, L.A. has a pretty solid Italian diaspora. Um, trying to think who else. Uh, I don't know. That might be it. I don't know. <laughs> in fairness, that sounds like quite a good range of American cities to, uh, to end up in. Yeah. Yeah, if any if any listeners want to remind me of some really strong Italian diaspora in other MLS cities, please uh, let me know. I'm sure I'm forgetting something uh, quite horrendous. But anyway, yeah, let us know. Yeah, as far as I know, there's no Little Italy in uh, Guangzhou, so yeah, or in Leicester for that matter, right? Or in, or in Leicester, yeah. Although Leicester is actually <laughs> a very a very um, 
kind of multicultural city so you know i'm sure there are other kind of cool things that he discovered there that's true maybe this supports your your that he's going to china things it's multicultural in a east asian aspect right like i heard there's a large east asian diaspora in leicester right um yeah i mean leicester's just genuinely has loads of diasporas i think it's quite a i went there for the title parade last year and it's just a really very very diverse city but um yeah i mean let's see where he where he ends up Got it. We will. Okay, let's move on to uh, this week's manager fight. Manager fight! All right, that one, sorry, my throat's a little weird. That one sounded kind of more like a moan than a, than a <laughs> hype video. But anyways, uh, this week we thought with, you know, Champions League games this this week, uh, one of these managers may not advance. And so we wanted to get a little, a little hipster football fight going on. Uh, let's get, so we got... In one corner, Pep Guardiola against the other corner, manager of Sevilla for now, uh, Jorge Sampali. And on paper, this is a pretty even matchup, I think, right? Yeah, they're both kind of, uh, yeah, they're lean. uh, They lack hair, which always suggests like virility, a lot of testosterone. Uh, I think, you know, they're both sharply dressed. They both kind of have like, suede shoes on which you know could really hurt you kick you in the shin with a suede shoe uh yeah so so i mean i'm i'm interested to hear what your thoughts are before i launch into mine but uh yeah go ahead who who do you think would win well so i mean i thought pep was older than this but i guess i shouldn't be surprised because you know he started so young his managerial career but he's 46 years old which i think is you know aside from like a, a lincoln city's manager the youngest manager we've we've done a manager fight with so far um so he's got youth on his side um he is 511 uh which is also fairly tall for our manager fights usually managers aren't over 6 feet it seems like uh, so I, I, he obviously stays in very good shape. He's a former player, uh, you know, played for a long time. He's, uh, whereas Sampali is much shorter. He's uh, five foot seven and a half. So he's got like five inches less. He's older. He's a decade older than, than, uh, than Pep. And his career, his playing career was much shorter because it was, cut short due to uh, like a really bad back injury i'm pretty sure sorry not back it was a leg injury it was like he he fractured like both his tibia and fibula at 19 years old um so i don't know whether that still affects his mobility now uh it was a long time ago i'm not sure how much you know top level mobility he needs in his leg for a manager fight but uh certainly something to consider yeah absolutely well my my theory on these two is that they're although they look kind of they have previously been the favorite of the uh mythical hipster football fan they uh and they look quite you know they look quite hip they favor kind of cashmere jumpers nice scarves uh you know like sort of sharp suits and as i said you know nice suede shoes stuff like that i actually think they've got something about them that's quite steely both of them i mean they're they're kind of you're right they are short but they're also very lean and they just kind of they look like guys would be quite hard and they're both um well i mean people's that they i mean pep especially but also sam Paoli kind of rumored they're both kind of tactical disciples of marcelo bielsa the famous kind of former chile and argentina and uh marseille manager and i reckon he just strikes me as apparently he's a real he has really kind of niche tactical views and i wouldn't be surprised if he also has a kind of a sideline in some sort of ancient martial arts like he kind of seems <laughs> he's got quite a kung fu panda vibe about him 
So I basically think that both of them are trained in deadly, deadly hand-to-hand combat art. And I'm, I, I don't know whether that affects who would win or not, but I just think we should both take that into account when picking our, picking our winner. I think you're completely on point in regard to some Polly's possible background in hand-to-hand combat. I'm also looking at this photo of him in a short sleeve shirt, and I, I have to say this has completely put me in some Polly's corner. He is, although he is shorter, he is much buffer. And yeah. his arm, he has serious definition on his arms. Like, he looks like a little weightlifter. And he's got some serious upper arm tattoo action going, which also indicates that he may be quite hard, as you put it. Yeah. And and he's he's screaming in this photo, and there's this giant vein popping on the side of his head. And I just, I, I see some Polly as being like that kind of guy who's, re- like you say, is really into like some weird martial arts. And that's like where he gets his, his niche tactical ideas. Whereas I think Pep probably reads like a lot of ancient philosophy and is into some very weird types of yoga and drinks tea that can only be found in the mountains, in, a very, in like a specific mountain in Nepal. And like so, I think I'm not sure that I would describe Pep Guardiola as hard, especially as the way I've seen him. Like, like the way he like gets all whiny and bitchy when the press goes after him. Like, I think I, that doesn't indicate to me a man who is secure in his physical prowess. I think he's an I think he's an intellectual. So, so like Sam Paoli has some sort of like atavistic Krav Maga skills sort of thing. And Pep Guardiola's got like healing tea. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of the vibe I get from each of them. So I think like I think some Polly kind of deceives with those like thick rimmed glasses he has, um, or at least has been known to wear. It looks like he doesn't always wear them, but I think that makes people think he's a lot more hipster than he is. The upper arm tattoos and I mean like serious biceps. I'm telling you, like I'm looking at some of these photos of him with Chile. I think Sampoli takes this in an easy drag-out knockdown. I don't think this is even at all. Okay, well, well, you know, to avoid a draw, I think you've convinced me. I'll, I'll go with you. We've had draws the last couple of weeks, I think. So, yeah, I'll say Sampoli. I suppose he kind of, when you say he's like, he looks more hips than he is, I think that's there's there's something pertinent in that. He kind of looks like the kind of guy who would maybe like run a kind of bar in like the East End somewhere, like kind of quite hip place, maybe Hoxton, Shoreditch. But that, like, if anyone sort of caused trouble, you'd come out from behind the bar, little bloke, you'd like sort of underestimate him, and then he'd just he'd just batter you. So, yeah, let's say some Pauli. All right, very good. Will, do you have anything you want to tell the people before we before we bid them adieu? I wrote a cult on uh, Hulk Hogan today. Uh, enjoy my Hulk Hogan hot takes, and uh, always kind of a this is more of a narrative profile. Yeah, enjoy it. Did you did you get into the fact that he is single-handedly responsible for the downfall of the American free press? I think he might be single-handedly responsible for the downfall of America. He seems like <laughs> he seems like a kind of precursor to um to everything that's going on in America at the moment. But also I also saw a really good video of him where he uh, it's like from the 80s kind of height of cold war tensions and he fought uh or he wrestled with a guy who was kind of set up as like a Russian wrestler. Who, and they kind of he came in with the American flag, the other guy came in with the Soviet flag, and then obviously Hulk Hogan like smacks him down and beats him up and is like, You're Hogan. And then he actually got the Soviet flag and headbutted it. And I think this says a lot to me because it says to me that 
Yeah, okay, Hulk Hogan, you know, he, he would, he's a big guy, you know, he's quite scary, he's, he's a real American, he's a true American, uh, he's made in America, but also, like, headbutting a flag is just not, a, like, an effective way of fighting a flag. Like, you know, <laughs> firstly, a flag is cloth, so you can't headbutt a flag to death. I mean, you'd, you'd die, your head would fall off before the flag got, you know, destroyed. And secondly, a flag represents an idea, and, you know... I think one of the main problems in America at the moment is that you can't headbutt an idea. <laughs> this is uh, extremely, extremely uh, pertinent to our current situation. Uh, just really with America in general, you can't, you can't headbutt an idea. That's like the lamest version of V for Vendetta I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I wrote, so I wrote this cult on Hogan. Uh, that, uh, hopefully that will be enjoyable. And also I've got, I think I've got an interview with Ian Wright coming out later in the week, former Arsenal striker and legend Ian Wright, um, who I spoke to not last week when I was on holiday, but the week before that, and uh, he was really nice. It's, the interview is basically about uh, the other clubs in his career that aren't Arsenal. And uh, yeah, it was it was quite interesting. So yeah, read read that stuff. Did you ask him about Wenger? No, in fact, the PR told us specifically you can't ask him about about Arsene Wenger because he kind of he'd got in trouble a few weeks previous for, for basically suggesting that Arsene Wenger had suggested to him that he might be leaving and Arsene Wenger had to kind of come out and deny that. So I think he was on kind of press lockdown talking about Arsene Wenger. Nonetheless, I don't, I didn't really want to ask him about Arsene Wenger, to be honest, because it just feels a bit, I feel like there is so much kind of Arsene Wenger, so much Arsene Wenger content out there at the moment that I'm not sure I want to be adding to that miasma. Well, that's why I asked because I thought it was like contractually obligated that if you were an English sports journalist, you had to ask Ian Wright or anyone tangentially related with Arsenal what they thought uh, Arsene Wenger would do at the end of the season. No, thankfully, I'm not part of the MSM, so I can actually ask the questions. with <laughs> We do a weekly Throwback Thursday segment on the site and... It is my turn this week to write about something. So I wrote about the time in 1961 when, I think it was 61. It was the early 1960s when soon-to-be President John F. Kennedy took to the pages of Sports Illustrated to fat shame America's youth. And it was a truly <laughs> landmark moment in American history with the incoming president being like, you kiddies are too fat and it's going to cost us and when we inevitably have to fight the Soviets in the looming Cold War. Uh, and it, yeah, it was just a pretty remarkable uh, essay. And it kind of fits in with a lot of current themes in American politics. And I get into that and I hope you will read it. That sounds like basically 20 years later, those same fat kids had taken loads of anabolic steroids, bulked up and were headbutting the Soviet flag. Yeah. I, was Hulk Hogan a fat kid? I don't even know. I don't know. I don't want to accuse him of being a fat kid. He was probably, <laughs> he was probably you know, he was probably a perfectly normally proportioned kid, but... I don't think so. There's nothing about Hulk Hogan to me that screams normally proportioned. <laughs> Nonetheless, I imagine he took Kennedy's words on board and thought... You know, I'm going to I'm going to slim down and bulk up and smash that Soviet flag with my forehead. Yeah. And then he did it. And then he, as you so aptly said, destroyed America uh, <laughs> about 40 years later. So. All right. Well, uh, thank you for stopping by once again on this glorious, glorious day. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 